0: want to talk to you today under the title Fellowship Based on Truth, Fellowship Based on Truth. On November 11th, 2021, we embarked on a journey through the epistles of John. Aside from a week here or there, we have gone word by word, line by line, and paragraph by paragraph to learn progressively as we move through John's epistles what the apostle had to say to you and me as Christians submitting to the word of the Lord. This morning, on our final morning in John's epistles, I want to recover some of the ground that we've already seen, especially those main points that we see reverberate through John's corpus. So, out of the interest of time, I'm not going to give you any more introduction. We're going to get started with our first point, which is this. Christ incarnate, the Son of God. Christ incarnate, the Son of God. This is the first point that I want you to open your mind and heart to. I want you to turn to the epistle of 1 John. So, we're going to rewind just a little bit from 3 John to 1 John. And we're going to find this text, namely Christ incarnate, the Son of God, in 1 John chapter 1. Church, if we're going to be successful in this endeavor, if we're going to be faithful to the material that John has presented to you and to me, and that we've been faithfully studying over the past 10 or 11 months, nearly a year, then we have to begin at the beginning, And the beginning for the Apostle John is Christ incarnate, the Son of God. In other words, if we get everything right, but we get Jesus wrong, nothing else really matters. If I stand up here and teach you and implore you to be moral and ethical in your lives and in your thoughts and in your actions, and if I encourage you to help the homeless and to love your neighbor, which has taken on a variety of meanings today... But I fail to make much of Jesus Christ. And I fail to convince you to love Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Son of God, then I have miserably failed. And you have miserably failed. I want you to look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read these verses quickly so that we can just wet our palate with this text. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, purpose clause, so that you too may have fellowship with us, standards, you've heard of them, principles, expectations, you want fellowship with us, you got to hold to this. and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete so under the title this morning fellowship based on the truth our first point is Christ incarnate the son of god and we see this in 1 john chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 it's a beautiful introductory paragraph of john's epistles And John immediately addresses this issue, namely, Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. He lived among them, John says. This was not a figment of our imagination. We didn't conjure this up. Jesus, the Son of God, lived among us. He says, he was heard with human ears, seen with human eyes, and touched with human hands. Church, that means Jesus was here. Wasn't a figment of some philosopher's imagination. Jesus was among us. A couple of things I want to share with you on this point. First, Christ incarnate. That is, Jesus Christ was in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation literally means. It's a Latin term, and it means incarnate in the flesh which is to say that Jesus was not here among us in an imaginary sense, but in a very real sense. Recall what John says in 1 John chapter 1. I'm talking to you about what we heard with our ears, what we saw with our eyes, and what we touched with our hands. This is a non-negotiable point to Orthodox Christianity. When Jesus was on the earth, he was born of the Virgin Mary, He was a man. He grew. He became hungry. He ate. He became weary and slept. And, of course, he was crucified and died. Not figuratively. Not in someone's imagination. But actually. Realistically. So that the hope... That you and I have is not based on a spiritual resurrection but on this fact that God in the power of his Spirit raised his son from the dead who is the first fruits of all who is to come the promise that you and I have when we flip over from our bed and our ankles are cracking and we're tired and we're dealing with cancer and we're dealing with depression and we're dealing with broken relationships, is not in some imaginary resurrection. It's in an actual resurrection, a physical resurrection. That is the first fruits of all of us who believe in Christ. And one day the trumpet will sound, and all the dead in Christ will be raised first, and those who are not will be joined with him in the heavens, and together we will be forever. But not if it's an imaginary thing. You see, we don't base our faith on imaginary things. We do base our faith on miraculous things. And if you have a problem with miracles, you're going to have a great problem with Christianity. Because Jesus was in the flesh. Second, Christ is the Son of God. You see, we not only have this teaching and the evidence that Jesus was 100% human, but we also have this teaching and the evidence that Jesus was 100% divine. It's what we call the hypostatic union. He's not 50% man and 50% God. He's not 25% man and 75% God. There isn't some sort of broken dichotomy in his personality. Jesus is not some religious schizophrenic. Jesus was all man And all God, because as God, he could not cease to be God. But he took upon himself the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to the will of his Father in agreement within the Trinity to lay down for sinners like you and me the necessary provision for our salvation. And glory be to his name. He wasn't a part of this and a part of that. He wasn't one thing or the other thing with one thing missing, uh, a certain aspect or percentage of itself in segments or degrees. No, Jesus was all man and all God. Or as the Westminster Confession wrote it so very long ago, he was very man and very God, which is to say Jesus was not in percentages But he was and he was. The incarnation reveals to us a Savior in Jesus Christ who is the Son of God at 100% and a man at 100%. In fact, John goes so far as to say that someone who says Jesus isn't the Son of God isn't just someone with a different opinion, which seems to be all the fame these days. John says, in fact, that someone who says that Jesus isn't the Son of God is a liar. And you already know what my opinion is about that because I stand up here at the rudder of this ship steering you on a regular basis toward what I believe is orthodox Christianity and it's not apologetic. It's not sorry for loving Jesus. And we can be loving, but we must be loving in an unnegotiable way. We don't say, listen, I'm a Christian and I'm really sorry that I'm a Christian. And if I hurt your feelings, I'm really sorry that, the, that you know, if I can do anything to help you. No! There are going to be a lot of people in hell in eternity whose feelings were hurt. And the reality of the matter is is if we don't share the gospel, they won't be saved. We have to share the gospel, and the gospel is not a part of this or a part of that. The gospel is not a moral life or a voting record. The gospel is, believe in the name of the Son of God, and you will be saved. And this is so important that the Apostle John says, but if you have a different Son of God, you're a liar. If you don't believe in the biblical revelation of the Son of God, you're a liar. Who is a liar, John says? But him who says Jesus is not God's son. This is a big pill to swallow, church. And this is a big pill to swallow because what John is emphasizing, what he is pressing upon us without apology is this. Say amen if you're listening. It is not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus, period. It's not Jesus plus good works. It's not Jesus plus good intentions. It's not Jesus plus anything. I'm going to take a different approach. It's not Jesus minus this. (laughs) There's a good possibility that some of us go limping into glory with some of the sins that we should have minused, but we're not going into glory because we're this moral or that moral, but because Jesus was moral. Because he was perfect, not because we were perfect. So if you have a different son of God, your salvation is completely compromised because your faith is in something or someone that the Bible did not ask you to place your faith in. We place our faith in Jesus, the incarnate son of God, because he is the one, forget the pluses and minuses, who can save us and save us for eternity. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. This is just one chapter forward from 1 John chapter 1. Just turn one chapter and look at chapter 2, verse 22. At the risk of sounding a little hot in your ears and a little forward in your heart, look at what the Bible says before you have a contention with my tone of voice. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. In no uncertain terms, church, John puts down a very clear line. Jesus is the Son of God, say amen, and without the Son, there is no relationship with the Father. You don't get the Father without the Son. But if you have the Son, you have the Father too. Listen to what Leon Morris says in his New Testament theology book. He puts it very beautifully. He says, notice that the enemy is not denying Jesus alone when he says he is not the Christ. He is denying the Father too. Because he viewed God as someone other than the God who sent his Son to be our Savior. Oh, I believe in God, but I don't believe in Jesus. Oh, no, you believe in an idol because my God sent Jesus. You believe in your God, and my, and my, my Bible calls that idolatry. One of my personal favorites, Herman Bavink, writes this very beautiful paragraph, and I want you to listen while I read it. Christ was God and is God, and will forever remain God. He was not the Father, nor the Spirit, but the Son, the own, only begotten, beloved Son of the Father. And it was not the divine being, neither the Father nor the Spirit, but the person of the Son who became man in the fullness of time. And when he became man, and as a man, went about the earth, even when he agonized in Gethsemane and hung on the cross, he remained God's own Son, in whom the Father was well pleased. Read the dead, guys. They soaked in this stuff. No TikTok, no Netflix. You know what he's saying, and we need to get this. The Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Spirit is the Spirit. We call this the economy of the Trinity. We don't confuse the persons. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father did not die on the cross. The Son did. You see what I mean? But we believe in one God, as Deuteronomy chapter 6 teaches us. Hear, O Israel, we call it the Shema. Hero O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So three persons but one God. You say, this is kind of confusing. Good. If you figure it out, you're wrong. I can guarantee you that much. It is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and these three distinct persons are eternal to eternal, are equally divine, and yet the three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are one God. And what we, need to fe- what we need to hear today, first and foremost, is that John is saying this, the Father sent the Son, and the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was incarnate, and he was indeed the Son of God. That's the first main lesson that I want us to see when it comes to John's corpus. The second main lesson that I want us to see is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Now, I really hate this one, so we're just going to skip it. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Forgiveness is that amazing gift of God in grace by faith that we receive but hate to give. Because it's difficult. It's prickly and abrasive. And I'm going to say this to you. I want you to hear say amen if you're listening. Forgiveness costs... Forgiveness costs us, doesn't it, church? And we don't do it because we'd rather pay the price of having the root of bitterness than pay the price of forgiving someone. Now, if that offended you, you can pray about it. But that's something we all deal with, amen? It is difficult to deal with the Christian truth of forgiveness. Now, we all desire forgiveness. Even those who desire to be excused from the consequences of their behavior, what they really desire is forgiveness. They just don't really understand it. They ask for permission and excusal, but the reality is in our sin, our mentality is twisted, and we can't see the light of truth, you and I, without the grace of God. We might not want the relationship with God that forgiveness is tied to. I'm talking to somebody. We might not want the righteous expectations that follow forgiveness, as in when Jesus says, you are forgiven of your sin, go and sin no more. But we all want to live a life that is free, practically and eternally. From the consequences of our sinful ideas and actions, and in Christianity, church, that is called forgiveness. John teaches that forgiveness isn't something that we simply find somewhere or in some ideology. Forgiveness is made available to us from God through repentance because of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is made available to us through repentance because of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, we read some of the most magnanimous verses in the entire Bible. John says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, if we what? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. A couple of things that are worthy to note here. Although there is much more for the interest of this morning's message, we're going to look at just three. First, John basically says we are all sinners. Say I. We are all sinners. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. Our beautiful children are sinners. Everyone is a sinner. Because of Adam, who was our federal head, our representative of humankind, we have been baptized, if you will, into sin. And as we are plunged into sin by one man, so we have made available to us salvation from that sin through one man. Adam condemns us, but Jesus can save us. We are all sinners, John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And John says, without this, first and foremost, admission, there will be absolutely no remission of sin, no forgiveness of sin. And sadly, this is where so many in our world currently are, and more sadly still, this is the mentality that has crept into the church. There isn't anything wrong enough for anyone to repent of anymore. I understand when the world acts like the world and sinners act like sinners. I understand when gender ideology has completely corrupted the educational structure, the pharmaceutical structure, the health industry, the political ideology that we have in our marketplace today. I understand. When sinners act like sinners. But what I don't understand is when Christians are too intimidated to call sinners to repent. Well, that's their decision. No, it's not. God is calling everyone everywhere to repent and believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. It's not American or European or black or white. Everybody's going to hell without Jesus. I don't care who they are or what their age is. Without Jesus Christ, we're lost. And you and I need to start living like we actually believe that. We talk to people. We need to say, it is that way because God has revealed it that way, but everyone who places their faith in Jesus will be saved. I don't believe it. Fine! But your belief or lack of it Does not make the truth of God untrue. The responses of sinners to the fact that we share the gospel is not our responsibility, that's God's sovereignty. Our responsibility is to share. Salvation is God's deal. But our command from the Father is to share the truth. And the truth is what? That we are sinners, that sin is a real problem. And in the world we go, look at these people, they're crazy. But the reality is, if we don't say, that is a sin, then we're guilty. We're guilty. The Bible says that sin is the breaking of God's law. And the Bible also says that we're all guilty of breaking God's law. So we don't walk around with a hammer judging everybody as if we've never been saved. We are instead, like John Newton said, thirsty people telling other thirsty people where they can find the water. That's what sharing the gospel is. Second, We should pursue forgiveness through repentance. First of all, we're all sinners. That's first base. The second point that we need to understand is that forgiveness is made available to us through repentance. Now, this is where so many people stall. Because it's a real issue for people, particularly wives, to say, you know what? You were right and I was wrong. I can say jokes like that today because my wife's with the kids. Hey, you stop that. Men, women, younger people, older people, we all have the same problem, and it's pride. Pride comes before the fall, and the reality is we truly believe that everybody's got a problem, but we believe with the same strength and conviction. That we have none. Without repentance, you will not be saved. If you do not repent of your sin, you will not be saved. Repentance comes from a word in the Bible that means to change your mind. It means to say that you were walking in one direction and you had a change of thinking about that direction so you change that thinking. Now, we know, because the Bible reveals this to us, that this is a work of God in our life, right? It is a work of God's conviction. Otherwise, we would keep negotiating and excusing and permissing and everything else our sin, right? I don't know if you've ever seen the show Intervention. You got to have a stomach to watch it. But you see in the show people who have had addictions for years and years and years and years. Meth addicts with the drug crystallizing under their skin, scratch marks, pit marks. They're emaciated and this close to death, and they go, I've got control of it. I've got a handle on this. I can quit whenever I want. We do this. We do this with so many different things. I use that as an illustration because it's an easy illustration, but the reality is you and I, every single one of us in this room or online, we all do it. We excuse our sin away and we say, I don't find this evil enough to need repentance. I'm going to say something, Christian. Our life is a life of of repentance. Our life is a life of putting our thinking God's way, turning the direction of our life so that it glorifies God. Now, we've got a lot of good people in our church. We've got a lot of good people that are in our inner circle, in our outer circle. The reality is there are probably a number of people in our church who are even better than I am, but nobody is better than God. And as long as you're measuring yourself against me or anybody else, you are measuring yourself against the wrong standard. Everyone who measures themselves against God comes up short. But this is where the great promise is. If we repent, if we admit to God that we are sinners, here's the third point. God is faithful to forgive amen look at this text again it says first john chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves we're all sinners the truth is not in us if we confess our sin that's the word repentance we're confessing god you were right and i was wrong i was living this way i know i've got to go the other way forgive me if we confess our sins look at the other side of this comma. He, that is God, he is faithful and just to do what? To forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see what John says here. John says that God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Here are some verses that I want you to see. I think they're on the slide. They're going to come up. The first is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive. Oh, man, I know that there are some parents in our church because I counsel them. They just wait for their kid to mess up, not because they're ready to forgive, but because they love to tell their kids they're wrong. They love to break out the ruler, as it were. They love to discipline or to punish. They cherish the opportunity to tell people around them that they're wrong. God says, I'm ready to forgive. I'm ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Some of you need to make a note of that in your Bibles Psalm 32, verse 1, blessed, it's a word that means happy, really well off, glad, fortunate. You can stick whatever idea you want in this idea of blessed, but what I don't want you to do is make it a stained glass window word, because it's not. Super happy, really, really glad is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven. So here's my deal. You see those Christians that are never happy? And you're like, dude, have you never read Psalm 32? The Bible says that you should stop moping, complaining, and griping. Why? Because the God of this universe has forgiven you. Or have you placed your hope of joy somewhere else? The reality is, the blessed one, the happy one, the fortunate one, the really one, the one that's really well off, the glad, the super joyous one, that's the one whose transgressions have been forgiven. Check yourself this week. Do you live your life as someone who knows their repentance to God in Jesus Christ led to forgiveness? Here's another one, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. I put this one up here just to appease my, my friend Hollis. Because we had a long diatribe about the necessity of Jesus' blood. Right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, that is to say, in Christ, we have redemption. How? Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Church, no blood, no forgiveness. No blood no forgiveness. Why? Why is it set up that way? Because Leviticus 17, 11 says, the life is in the blood. And when Jesus died shedding his blood for you and for me, Peter says, it was a life for a life. However you approach it, one thing is certain. Are you listening? Forgiveness is a key component to a faithful view of Christianity. And our God forgives the repentant. But not only is forgiveness an important part of Christianity, but also justification and propitiation. You say, what's that word? No, that's the word. Propitiation. Say it with me. Propitiation. This is a very, very important idea to John. It happens in other places in the Bible as well, but in particular, we see it in John's letters. While John's writings are always readable and practical, he is also extremely theological. John never shies away from the deep and doctrinal truths because he knows, and you and I should learn from this, that doctrine precedes doxology. Orthodoxy precedes orthopraxy. That belief precedes behavior. In other words, we act in accordance to how we think. This is the case with justification, or the word and idea that John likes propitiation. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find very many churches still using words like sin, hell, repentance, or, much less, propitiation, even though these words are in the Bible. It's not easy, it's not shallow, and, of course, it's not popular. Words like these have been scrubbed and replaced with terms that are in the vernacular so that the message of the gospel is more palatable and more acceptable, particularly to those who we would call outsiders. This is a church philosophy that is called seeker-sensitive. We don't use words like that because someone might visit our church and hear a word like sin and go, that guy sees that guy us sin, that's not a word I like to use, and therefore not return. But we don't have church for people who don't believe in Jesus. We have church for people who do believe in Jesus. Every single book in the Bible is written to Christians. There is not one book in the Bible that is written to an unbeliever. But we get together and we sing songs and preach sermons that have almost nothing to do with Christianity because someone might be in the audience who isn't a Christian. And the last thing we would want to do is see them come to Jesus Christ. We want them to feel comfortable in their sin. We want them to feel comfortable about their acceptance of all things ungodly. We want them to feel comfortable about, you name it. The reality of the matter is, you and I have an obligation, and it's not to guests. It's not even to members. Our obligation, first and foremost, is to Jesus Christ. We live faithfully to him. And all other things fall where they need to fall. Now, I love to see guests and visitors in our church. I'm grateful that we always have guests and visitors in our church. But we aren't changing the way that we do things so that we can have guests. You can be seeker-sensible without being seeker-sensitive. Those are two different ideas. the reality of the matter is, When we do church, we look at what the New Testament teaches us, and we do the best that we can to duplicate that in Miami in 2022. God has not called us to mediocrity. Can I get an amen to that? He has called us to excellence. He's called us to do all things to his glory. He expects us to love him with all our hearts and with all our souls and all our minds. So let's do a little work on this, and let's love the Lord with all our minds. Propitiation is a biblical term. It doesn't happen in some of your Bibles because the translators decided to make the Bible more readable, and they don't put the word propitiation, they just dilute it, and they put something like "mercy" or "offering" or something along those lines. But the word is propitiation, which is why I recommend you use the ESV. We see the pro- this word "propitiation" in two specific places in John's writings: First John chapter two, verse two, and First John chapter four, verse 10. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 and 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. I'm going to read these consecutively. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 reads like this: He, that is to say, Jesus, is the propitiation for whose sins? Our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. That was chapter 2, verse 2. Now chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we can, off the bat come to this agreement, this is an important idea because it's God doing for us what is called propitiation through his son, Jesus Christ. So if God is doing something for us through his son, Jesus Christ, I don't care what they call it, we need to understand it. These verses demonstrate something, namely that we remain under God's wrath as long as we are unforgiven and unredeemed in Christ. You see, we just talked about forgiveness, didn't we? And forgiveness means that we are removed from judgment and placed in a place of favor and blessing and grace. We are, to use the word that the Apostle Paul uses, adopted into the family of God so that we can pray with a sure heart, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen? But what we're learning here is that before propitiation has happened in our life that is to say before we are forgiven and the wrath of God that was on us is removed from us God is not our father and we are not forgiven. But look at what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 about Christians 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 9 Paul says God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ I can't think of another verse in the New Testament that places in such plain wording the idea of propitiation no Christ wrath of God Christ no wrath, but you're obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. So we bump into people all the time that we like and we love and we're friends with, and they're not in Christ. They're non-Christians. In that case, I like them, I love them, I, I think highly of them, whatever the case might be, but in eternity, they will not be with me unless they place their faith in Jesus Christ, repent of their sin, and God's wrath will be removed from them because propitiation That is to say, the removal of God's wrath from us because we're sinners is only available to us in Jesus Christ. We've been forgiven. We've experienced his propitiation. And now, let's talk for a moment about sanctification. Or, as John likes to say, walking righteously in the truth. Walking righteously in the truth. Now, following our previous points, we have sanctification, and the order here is incredibly important. We know who Jesus is. We repent of our sins and are forgiven. We have propitiation in our lives, that is to say the removal of God's wrath because of our forgiveness and faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result of those things taking place, we see a practical difference in our lives. In other words, sanctification is something that follows our relationship with God. It comes from the root word, holy. The word sanctification comes from the root word, holy. The word sanctification comes from what root word? Holy. You know what holy means. It doesn't mean saints and all that jazz. Holy means clean. Holy means right. To be pure, to be unspotted from the world. God is holy, and He calls His people to be sanctified. In fact, that's what we are called. The word for saints in the New Testament means holy ones. So if you are a Christian here today, you have repented of your sin and you have been forgiven and propitiation has occurred in your life, God's wrath has been removed, and you are set, destined to obtain salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, by biblical definition, this might be scary, hold on to your seat. You, by biblical definition, are a saint. This is something that we have to understand because I do believe it should impact our lives, what decisions we make how we act, how we think, and how we live. That's what sanctification is all about. This is perhaps seen in the most concise terms, if you want to turn there, in 2 John. So if you go from 1 John to 2 John, and if you look at verses 4 through 6, I'm going to read them very quickly. Say amen when you're there. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children. How? Walking in the truth. just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one we have from the beginning, that we love one another. Verse 6, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Listen, church, the Bible in general, as well as the Apostle John, often used graphic and vivid language to convey the point. To be a Christian is to be a person of faith in God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ and God the Holy Spirit who is walking according to the Word. I love what Psalm 1-1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But that person's delight is in the law of the Lord. Church, to walk according to the faith means that someone is living. Living according to the faith. So my question for you this morning is, on a regular basis, Monday morning, Wednesday afternoon, Friday, whatever, are you walking in a way that's Christian? Are you walking in a way that's Christian? 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That is to say, you know how Jesus walked? Yeah, yeah, I see how Jesus walked. You need to walk like that. I need to walk like that. I know it's a fad, and half the people that are wearing them don't know Jesus, but the what would Jesus do bracelets? What would Jesus do in this context or in this situation? It's a great question to ask yourself before you make any decision about anything. A little hard to know what Jesus would do, though, if you don't read your Bible or know him. Bracelets do not make Christians. Now, out of the interest of time, I think we're going to skip spirit and abiding. So let's jump down to eternal security. Finally, I want to talk to you about eternal security. And this will be found in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Now, we certainly see it in 2 John and 3 John. If in nothing else, the tone that John uses when he's talking about those who are in the church and those who act like they're in the church but aren't. John has no doubt whatsoever that those who are in Christ are always in Christ. And he has no doubt that those who aren't in Christ but act like it still are not in Christ. You don't get to negotiate these things. You are either in Christ, and there forever, and you're out of Christ. That's it. Those are your two options. So today, to finish our message, I want to talk to you about something that is incredibly important and that many churches and teachers have gotten wrong over a long period of time in order to make allowances for their terrible theology. 1 John chapter 5 verses 11 through 13 these are verses that should give you and me comfort as Christians. The Apostle John wrote these magnificent words so that as Christians, corporately and individually, we would have an anchor for our soul. Regardless of the tide or the current of the world, you and I should know at all times that our salvation is secure. And so John writes these words beginning in verse 11 of 1 John 5, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Now, I want to pause there just for a quick second, and I want you to get this. John does not say, This is the testimony that God said, if you work hard enough and you're a good enough person, you'll have eternal life. That's absolute heresy. John does not say if you muster the will if you reach down deep inside yourself you will find that you're actually good thank you no John just said in first john chapter 1 that if you say you're not a sinner you're a liar that we're sinners and undeserving of God's salvation. What we need is God's work in our life. And so, as the conclusion of his letter here in 1 John chapter 5, he doesn't say, now listen, this is the testimony. You're not bad, but, but you're, not, you're not all the way good if you try hard enough. Really, if you reach down into your free will, which is two words that never happen in the Bible... And and you find in your free will a spark of light. And if you start to listen to these fools and heretics like Deepak Chopra or Joel Olstein, and you start to help old ladies across the street and stop cheating on your spouse with pornography or alcoholism or the lady that you work with, and you start to live a good, you know, Republican lifestyle, you'll be saved. You only laugh because I'm making it so ridiculous because it's true. You laugh because it hurts. The reality is we've got a lot of Christians who would love heaven even if just Jesus wasn't there because the streets are gold and the gates are pretty. And we have done a horrendous job of making Jesus beautiful. The Apostle John says everything starts with Jesus. And if you're saved, it's not because of you. Here's the testimony, church God gave us eternal life. God gave us because He's gracious and He's rich and He's abounding in love and steadfast kindness, and He gives to His people. Not because we deserve it, but because He's good. Not because we can earn it, because we can't earn it, because we're sinners. We've already established that. We can't establish that in one place and get wobbly on another. If we're saved, it's not because of what we've done, it's because of what He's done. Here's the testimony good, bad, or ugly whatever your grandmother ever said about you, if you're saved, it's because God saved you. That's the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Oh, I believe in the Lord Jesus. And then you read the New Testament, and you go, the reason you believe in the Lord Jesus is because God was doing a work in your life. Oh, We don't talk about those things when we evangelize, because that's not the point of evangelism. Evangelism is, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. Amen? We believe that wholeheartedly without any equivocation, without any doubt. If I tell someone, if you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you will be saved. I believe that wholeheartedly, 110%. I also believe that if someone believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not because they love God. It's because God loved them first. May we never become dumb about the depths of theology. And may we never make salvation about you and me. May every time salvation is discussed, it be like this. Praise be to God, to whom all glory is due. This is the testimony, guys, that God, get this, gave us eternal life. And this life is found where? In his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son doesn't have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you believe? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Right here, immediately, you can see a number of things that are conveyed to us in verses 11 through 13. First, first, eternal security is God's assurance to us. It's not our assurance to him. Listen, God's not impressed by us. And we're not going to tell somebody that if they live good enough, they'll stay Christians. You weren't good enough to become a Christian. You aren't going to be good enough to stay a Christian. You were saved by grace in the beginning. You're going to be saved by grace in the end. Some of you, and I've said this, we're going to go limping into glory. But I'm going to tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, you'll be there. Because it's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's not about what you've done. It's about what he did for you and for me. This is the testimony God gave us, Eternal Life Church. You are no more eternally saved on your best day than you are eternally saved on your worst day. You get it? You say, I feel like a lousy Christian. Doesn't matter. Your salvation is still at 100%. And then when you have a great day and you're like, where's the lake? I'm going to walk on water. Today's the day I walk on water. And you feel great? Your, Your salvation is at 100%. Because whether you are doing a magnificent job of representing Christ and loving Jesus, or if you're doing a horrible job, you are no more saved on your best day than you are on your worst day. Assurance is God's gift to us. Not the other way around. We're not coming together, telling each other, live in such a way that God is going to be decisive when it comes to your death. When you die, he's going to go, oh, should he come, should he go? No, 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 we're not, we're not teaching God assurance. God is teaching us assurance. I love what Psalm 37 says. Psalm 37 Verses 23 and 24. If you want to hear this psalm, say amen. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. He may fall, but he will not fall entirely because the Lord holds his hand. Some of you are reflecting on your life and you're saying, look at this mess. And I'm here to tell you the only reason it's not worse is because when God takes a grip of your hand, he never, ever lets go. Second, eternal security is God's intention. It's his intention. Look at Verse 12, it seems clear to me, and I'm sure that it seems very clear to you too, that God has designed a mode of salvation that is simple and imparts confidence to the believer. Listen, whoever has the Son has life, whoever does not have the Son. Does not have life. Now this just infuriates everybody who's outside of Christ. But if you're inside Christ, this should be the greatest sounding thing you've ever heard. If you have, Oz, you got Jesus? You're saved. That's it. Janine, you have Jesus? You're saved. But, but what about... Mm-mm. That's not how it works. I'm going to take you back to the Bible. But you don't know what I've done. Oh, oh, you might be right. If you have the son, you have life. But you have no idea where I... If you have the son... You have life. Now, we can talk about sanctification, right? We can talk about, hey, are you in Christ? I'm in Christ. You need to start living like it. You need to start walking like it. You need to start talking like it. If you are, in fact, in Christ, it will reveal itself in your life. But if it doesn't reveal itself in your life, Jesus says, well, you're going to know him by the fruit. You're going to know him by the fruit. If somebody's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they live like hell, they don't know Jesus. But we all make mistakes, and we are all sinners, And sometimes we can be guilty of horrific and regrettable things. Say, I. But the reality is, Jesus is still your Savior. Do you have the Son? Yes, you have life. If you do not have the Son, then you do not have life. This is God's intention to let us know that if we have Jesus, we are eternally secure. Thirdly, finally. Eternal security, and this is for you, eternal security is to be known. Eternal security is to be known. This is where teachers, Charles Stanley is one of them. There are a lot of pastors out there who are very well-known and people listen to and take heed to, and that's fine, but a lot of them teach that if you don't take care of your salvation, like feeding a baby, the baby dies, so does your salvation. And that is unbiblical. And some of them teach that no matter what you live, no matter how you live, if you say a prayer, you'll be saved. This was the debate in the late 80s and early 90s that they called the lordship debate. If you are saved by Jesus, he's your savior. But does that also make him your lord? In other words, can I be a Christian and live a non-Christian life? And the answer to that very stupid question is no, you cannot. But there are those in that elk who will say, yes, you can say a prayer and get saved, but still live a entirely live Christ-dishonoring life. That's not biblical. That's not. You will not find a verse that says this person lived terrible and, and, and did not do anything that had a remotely you know, connection to Christianity, but they did say a prayer one day, and therefore, that's, that's not in the Scriptures. The Scriptures teach us, those of us who have the Son, that because we have the Son, we can know the confidence of eternal security. Look at First John chapter 5. Verse 13, I, want, I write these things, excuse me, to you who believe, that's the word faith, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, I write these things to you. Notice this is not put in, you know, the Greek herald. This is a Christian apostle writing to Christians. There is no promise of assurance for anyone else outside of the church. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, what? K-N-O-W. So that you will know you have eternal life. It's not a doubt. It's not a curiosity. It's not a hope. It is a truth. It is a fact. If you believe in the name of the Son of God, the Bible says you can know that you have eternal security. Now, why do some Christians struggle with eternal security? Well, there's a, some Christians struggle with eternal security because they're ignorant of who God is. They genuinely become Christians, but they neglect their Bible. They don't really go to church very faithfully, and they've got this view of God that's been kind of passed down to them, and it's like this humanitarian God. It's not a biblical God. He's indecisive. He changes his mind. Sometimes he's good. Sometimes he's not. He's not the sovereign God who is always good in the Bible. And when you're View of your salvation is not not connected to the biblical God, it can get wobbly. Here's another one. They're out of fellowship. Some Christians struggle with eternal security because they're out of fellowship. There there are Christians, this is weird for me, I know that I'm a pastor, okay? But this is weird for me. I'm going to use my secretary as an example. She's not a pastor. If the doors are open, she's here. I never say, Patty, are you coming to church today? I never say, Patty, are you having your bi-weekly Thursday Bible study? I never say, Patty, do you and Jay plan on coming to Wednesday night by? I never have to say that because Patty is a Christian. And you know where Christians are when the church worships? At worship. We have Christians who are not confident in their faith, and it's because they miss church every time the wind blows out of the southeast. There are Christians who are not in church today, even though we were spared from Hurricane Ian because it rained this morning. And there are Christians who will only worship online. They want the message, but they don't want the pastor. Not everybody online. They want the preaching, but they don't want the accountability. And people say that to those of you who are in our seating, and you come and you tell me, so-and-so said this, and -and so-and-so said that. By the way, you don't say anything that I don't hear. So think twice. And I know what you think of me depending upon how your children treat me. If your children look at me out of the corner of their eye, I know what you say at the dinner table. There are people who want the preaching, but not the accountability. And when it comes time for security, it's absent because they're neglecting the fellowship of believers that is commanded to us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Do not forsake the assembly. In this metaverse, in this online church, in this YouTube, it's a lousy place to go to church. half the time, I know, sometimes i got so much going on and i got this and it's like going to the gym. I don't want to go. And five minutes after there, you're like, I'm so glad I went. And worship is the same way. I can't tell you how often we've been here because I've gotten in a fight with my kids or my wife or somebody grabbed me in the hallway and just felt like dumping a bunch of stuff on me and I'm trying to be in the frame of mind of worship and I'm not. And as soon as we start worshiping, God just meets me. And he goes, it's not about you, Joe. It's about me. It's about your family. Your security can fall into question because you're living ungodly lives. There are people who love Jesus and love him very badly. They make decisions that reflect the world, not Jesus. They live lifestyles and choose partners, for example. That puts them in an unequally yoked situation. So they stop going to church because their partner doesn't go to church, and they really want their partner to like them. It could be because you're neglecting the disciplines. What are the disciplines? Bible reading, prayer, prayer. All of these things contribute to the confidence that God wants you to have. Now, you can die with a very small amount of confidence, but your eternal security is not based upon your confidence, praise God. Your eternal security is based on this fact. God said, if you're in the Son, you have life. What I am telling you as your pastor is, if you feel like you don't have life, if your experience is that you don't have life, but you know you are in Christ, these are the reasons. If you miss church every time you, can, every time you get the chance, if you're not reading your Bible on a regular basis, if you aren't fellowshipping with other Christians who are like-minded and can encourage you along the path, Your eternal security, the confidence that is wrapped up in that promise of God, can become jeopardized. But that's not God's intention. To close, let me say this. I'm always pleasantly surprised in the organization and teaching of God's word, the theology that He imparts to us. If you have a small God, you're going to have small theology. There's a little book written by J.B. Phillips years and years ago called Your God is Too Small. I bump into people all the time. I tell them, you need to read that book. You know why you're having this struggle in your marriage or in your parenting or in your personal life or with this sin? Because your God is too small. You are not impressed by God anymore. And far be it from us to ever become dull with God John has passed down to us a lot of great things. Christ is God incarnate. Forgiveness is a promise to those who repent. Propitiation means that God's wrath is not on us anymore. It's been removed. And we are destined for eternal salvation. The Spirit, we skipped that because we've got too much going on, and I've been long already this morning. And finally, we talked about eternal security, which is not a promise to the elite. It's not a promise to those Christians who we look at from a distance and we're like, I wish my faith was like theirs. Everyone's faith can be strong. But regardless of whether you're having a good day or a bad day, if you are in Christ, you can never be out of Christ.